Um, well, I'm going to pray, and uh, we're actually going to jump right into the, a time in the Word. So if you would, please do me a favor, track down a Bible if you can, and get with me to the book of Daniel and to chapter 4 of that book of Daniel. All right, let me get situated up here. All right, Daniel chapter 4, I'm going to pray, and we will get to work. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would use this time in your word to speak over us. We thank you, God, for the lessons that you give us in your word. We pray, God, that as your people, we would hear your voice. We pray that you would uh, exert that ministry of the Spirit today, that you would take your word and make it live, that we would be radically changed from having gathered together to hear your voice. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 1, we, what we have is a, a we'll kind of look at it in three different chapters or three different scenes. It's the story of Nebuchadnezzar and another dream that he has. And so we're going to look at that uh, unfolding. So we've got three different scenes. Scene 1 is the king has another dream. Uh, king Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. We're told right at the front end who this message is for. Look at it in verse 1. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. Right out of the gate, he's telling us, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who's going to kind of speak this story. He's going to share uh, his experience, and he's telling us right out of the gate, hey, this is a message for everybody. This is a message for all nations and all peoples of every language. So for us today, we need to think, okay, this is God's word for us. We're not just listening to a story about some archaic experience, some old monarch long, long ago. This is something, this is a lesson for us here today. So it is for all nations and all peoples and every language who live in all the earth. And he says, may you prosper greatly. That word prosper will show up multiple times in this text here, but it's a word for peace. It's a word for the prosperity and the blessing of God. And this is a season where I feel the need to say, we need peace. We need this prosperity that God can give us. We need it greatly. This is a chaotic moment. This is a chaotic cultural moment, and we need the prosperity of God to overwhelm us. And so I hope that even as we go through this story, and in a few minutes when you get bored and you're thinking about who cares about this dude and his dream and all these different kind of random features of the dream, just remind yourself this is a lesson for us today, for you. So what is it about? We're told the conclusion in the introduction, that's how one writer puts it. In verses 2 and 3, Nebuchadnezzar reveals what this dream and its interpretation is going to mean for us. It says, It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. So he's telling us, hey, here's what, here's what we're going to find here. There's this sovereign God who is acting in human history and his, what he's doing, his works, his wonders, his signs, they are beyond description. They're incredible in so many different ways. And it is my pleasure then to tell you about them and to remind you and to show you of this God whose kingdom is an eternal kingdom, whose dominion lasts forever and ever. So what is the dream? He 
has a dream that he describes in verses four and following. It goes like this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. There's that ironic term there. He's there, he's comfortable, he's happy, but he has a dream and it makes him terrified. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed by passed through my mind, terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Does that sound familiar? It's a recurring pattern in the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar is seeking wisdom and guidance from all the people in the current day who are able to offer those sorts of things. They're described as magicians, enchanters, astrologers, diviners, Chaldeans, and other things. But he goes to them and he hopes, hey, can you please explain to me what on earth is happening? What is this dream that I had? And why is it so terrifying to me? What does it mean? And it ends up being uninterpretable by modern conventions of wisdom. I've said this before and it's worth competing, uh, repeating. Um, right now, many of us are looking to the wisdom of the age to try to define the moment. We're saying, okay, we're going through this incredible cultural moment right now. How do we, how do we engage with it? What, what is really happening here? And the truth is, the wisdom of the day is inadequate to really explain what's going on. So if we're going to the experts in the various fields, social scientists and medical experts and scientists who are de developing vaccines and economists and you know, political leaders, and we're going to them and we're saying, can you please, for us, can you please explain what's happening? Their wisdom is inadequate for the moment. But there's a wisdom from God which we desperately need. We need to hear the voice of God. We need to, to hear the wisdom from God himself, the wisdom of God that is un, that, that's able to reveal these mysteries to us, to make plain these things of God. We're not going to find this wisdom in the articles that we read online. We're not going to find this wisdom uh, in the news reports. We're not going to hear this wisdom from any sector in our society, but God is a God who speaks to us. So there's a representative here in this story, and Luckily, in our day as well, God is speaking to us through his word, but the representative is Daniel. Verses 8 and 9 tell us, finally, Daniel steps into the story. He came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He's called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream. Interpret it for me. Daniel steps into the scene, and Daniel is a representative of God, and he's able then to explain, but we find him here being called the chief of the magicians, So that might kind of tweak you out a little bit. Okay, what's, so is Daniel a wizard? What's going on here? I don't totally get this, but Daniel is somebody who has been forcibly taken from his hometown in, in Judah, and he has been co-opted into this plan of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and he's been trained in the ways of Babylon, and he becomes an official part of that class of people that are called the wise individuals in the, in the community. And Nebuchadnezzar sees them as magicians and enchanters and diviners and these sorts of things. But Daniel has done such an exceptional job that he has become the chief wise person in the land. And so Daniel comes into the, into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar is now asking him, please tell me what the meaning of my dream is. 
So the dream has different aspects to it. The first is the dream is about a tree, verses 10 through 12. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From every creature, from it, every creature was fed. There's this tree, and this is an exceptional tree. It's an enormous tree. It's got these large branches that reaches up to the sky. It's got an abundance of fruit, and in it, there's shelter for birds and wild beasts of the field. But the tree then is a metaphor. It's describing, uh, uh, really, you'll see it change here in a minute to a person. The tree becomes a hymn. It's a metaphor, and, and we're going we're gonna to figure this out in just a moment. But there's a decree about that tree. There's a message from heaven, and the message is from an angel, and the angel is saying this tree is going to be cut down. Let's look at it. It says in verses 13 and following in the visions, I saw while lying in bed, I looked and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given uh, the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The tree is to be cut down and only its stump is to remain. And all the beauty of this tree with its branches and its um, leaves and its fruit is now decimated. And it's to stay there for a period of time, seven times pass by. And then we get this partial but in very important interpretation. I think this is probably still the angel talking in verse 17, but we're told then what's going on. It says here, the decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. And he gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Here's what it's saying. God is sovereign, and he rules over his creation, and you will experience this humiliation for a period of time until you come to recognize that truth. There is a God. He is real. He is in control. He's active in the world that he has made, and until you acknowledge that with sincerity and wholeness, you will be humiliated. So there's the message right there. It's a message about the sovereignty of God and his rulership over kings and kingdoms and leadership of the people he has control over the world that he has made, and he gives kingdoms and nations to anyone he wishes, setting over them the lowliest of people. And so the tree and the decree, and finally, the plea, a request, please interpret the dream for me. This is terrifying to me. I can't sleep at night. I'm discerning that this is something awful, and I have a sense that it, Nebuchadnezzar would be saying it's something about me, and I want to know. What is it that, that, that's being described here for me? This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. See, number one, the king has another dream, and here we're being told, we're being reminded the importance of the voice of God. 
we need to not only hear from God, but we need to understand what it is that he's doing. This is a moment for us as Christians to say the most important thing that we ought to be pursuing right now is understanding what God is up to in this world. And we're not going to go to other places and other experts and other fields of study to try to answer all these questions. We're going to go to the source. We're going to go to God. We're going to ask for him to give us the clarity of understanding what's happening right now. Scene number two, Daniel interprets the dream. The dream is troubling to Daniel. He is deeply disturbed by what he's seen. Verse 19, it says, Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. What he has experienced as he prays about and God gives him the revelation of the dream and its meaning, he's disturbed by it. And the king gives him permission then. I just want you to be honest here. Don't be terrified here. You have my permission to speak truth over me. And Daniel is unsettled by this and maybe doesn't know exactly what to say in this moment. I don't know if uh, you've, you've been in experiences like this. I mean, this week I did a, a funeral and I talked to somebody who's dealing with some very heavy stuff. And there are moments where you say, I don't really know what to say. And that's this moment for Daniel. He's, he's troubled by the gravity of the moment. But Daniel responds in the second half of verse 19. He answered, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. This is really a wild statement. This is Daniel saying, I wish it weren't true for you. Throughout this entire series, I've been suggesting to you, one of the main themes of the early chapters of Daniel is love for enemy. And you might have thought to this point, Corey, you're stretching it a little bit here. That feels very unfounded. I can't, I can't really see that here in, in these various stories. But here it is, plain as day. Daniel is looking at his enemy and he's saying, I wish this weren't true for you. I wish this weren't true for you. King Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon who, had, who defeated Daniel's nation, whose military campaign overwhelmed Daniel's nation. And then he took Daniel and his friends captive, and he removed them from their homeland and placed them into a, a, a program where they were being trained to become Babylonians. And they were being forced into that. They had to do that. They were being co-opted into the plan of the king, and the king wanted this so badly that if there was even a whiff of their disobedience, what did he say to them? If you don't do what I say, I'll torch you. I will heat up this furnace and I will throw you in it. So the king is an enemy of Daniel and his friends, but Daniel, because he is so radically changed by the love of God, he looks at his enemy and he says, I wish this weren't true for you. He loves his enemies. I wish this dream applied not to you, but to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Who is your enemy right now? Because I want to suggest that Christians ought to be people who love very, very well. And so I'd like for you to call to mind the people that irritate you. I'd like right now for, for you to call to mind the people that you would consider your adversary. And I don't imagine this exercise being very challenging because uh, I follow some of you on social media. And so I know you have very, very strong opinions. There's a whole group of people who are different from you that you would be able to say, they stand for everything that I'm against, right? Right now in, the, in our nation with the political divide that's so obvious, 
There are people that we look at and we say, I just, I just hate them. Christians are people who should be able to love our enemies. And I would, I would put it like this. If the message of the gospel is changing you at the deepest of levels, you will be able to look at people who are very different from you and you will be able to, to, to say to them, I want what's best for you. I want what is best for you. I, I, I don't want harm to befall you. I, I don't want ill to happen to you. Christians are people who are radically changed. But, but listen, if I say, call to mind your enemies, and all that you can find in your heart is hatred and malice and rage, I, I think this is a moment to confess that to God and to repent and to ask God to change us and make us more like him Believers in God, believers in the promises of God are people who recognize that the, the character of God is love, and they love even those who would easily be called their enemy. Well, Daniel does that well. He's serving the king. He's blessing the king. He's speaking kindly to the king, but he reveals the, the interpretation of the dream. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with its beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. Your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar led an incredibly successful military campaign. He had built up his army, and he had conquered all of the lands around him. He had built up the economy of Babylon. You can Google this and, and read about the, the accomplishments of King Nebuchadnezzar. He built a hanging garden that was just so impressive that history notes it. A hanging garden where all of these different you know, fruits and vegetables and plants were being grown in Babylon. And he did all of this stuff, and it was very formidable, but here we find out that this greatness of the tree, that, that Nebuchadnezzar is that tree with its you know, branches reaching up to the sky and its fruit going to all these different places and all these people finding refuge under him and his leadership. But here's the problem. The tree is going to be cut down. Nebuchadnezzar, you will experience the judgment and the discipline of God. Verse 23, your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, an angel from God coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass field with its roots remaining in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. The, the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar is about to be reduced. He's about to lose his authority. He's about to lose his position. He's about to be um, taken from that palace and out into the wilderness. And we're told in verse, what, what was it, 17, that he'll be given the mind of a wild beast. He'll be crazy. He'll be out of his mind. He'll be living under the stars of heaven, covered by the dew of heaven. He'll be with the wild animals. He'll be eating the grass of the field. And this will happen for some period of time. Seven times passed by for him. That's either se several months or several seasons, but he's going to be reduced and destroyed for a period of time. So what does it mean? What does it mean for him? Verses 24 and 25, this is the interpretation, your majesty. This is what it means. This is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. 
You'll eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you. But here's the lesson then. We're told it right in verse 25. We're told here's, here's what needs to happen. Here's why all of this is unfolding in the way that God is issuing for you. Here's the lesson. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. This is going to happen for that period of time until you come to this conclusion. God is sovereign, and all the nations and all the kingdoms are under his sovereign leadership and rule. He gives them to anyone that he wishes until you can acknowledge that, Nebuchadnezzar, until you can humble yourself to recognize your place in the world, you will experience this humiliation. Verse 26, the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that you will, you will be restored. Your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. When you finally get to that place of humiliation where you're able to say, you know who's really in charge here? God. And though I might have all of this authority and though I might have all of this wealth and all of this success in my life, ultimately it's owing to God. Until you can acknowledge that, until you can confess that God is the sovereign ruler over heaven and the earth, you will experience this humiliation. Here's, here's what Daniel says then. He wisely says, here's what you ought to do. You can summarize it with one word, repent. You can summarize the you know, the suggestion of, of Daniel here and really the message of all the prophets into one word, it's repent. Turn from this evil and wicked posture of yours, this way of thinking about life, this perspective that you have, and instead turn to God. Look at verse 27. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what's right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. God is saying that there's a judgment coming, a, a, a divine punishment coming for your good to help you see things as they really are. But King, listen, why don't you right now immediately apply the lesson that you're intended to learn? Why don't you immediately repent and change your ways and begin to, pr to practice justice and righteousness? Why don't you do this now and maybe that prosperity that you've experienced, that peace that you have, that that experience that you've had for so long now, maybe it will be extended. Maybe you'll actually feel the reality of it. Please do that. Now, I was wondering this week, what's the connection between pride of Nebuchadnezzar and this call here to be kind to the oppressed? What's, why is it that he's saying, repent, change your ways, renounce your evil ways, and be kind to the oppressed? And then it clicked for me. Prideful leadership is oppressive. Prideful leadership abuses people. The reason why Nebuchadnezzar has to learn this lesson, there are many reasons, but one of them is that the people who are in his kingdom are suffering. He's using them for his own advantage. And then I was thinking about some of us. I'm a leader in a church. Some of us are leaders in our organizations, and I want to suggest to us that we evaluate the character of our leadership. Because if our leadership is motivated by pride, there will be people who are suffering. The way that they experience you, the way that they experience your, um, your leadership and your ambition and your drive will actually result in their harm. And so we need to be careful that we're listening to the voice of God through Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and that we're recognizing that we need to repent, renounce our evil ways, and practice righteousness. Be kind to the oppressed. And I hope that we would be willing to do that. Scene number three, the dream 
comes true and is applied. 12 months later, it all happens. Verses 28 and 29. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later as the king was walking along the top of his palace in Babylon. One writer puts it like this, mercy loves delays. I don't know why it happened a full year later. I don't know why it didn't happen immediately, but 12 months later, it happens. He's standing on the top of his palace, and in verse 30 it says, he's admiring his handiwork. Is not this, looking at all that he has accomplished, is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. He's looking at his, his kingdom and he's saying, look at all that I've accomplished. Look at how impressive this is on account of me. This is his own admission of pride. With his own lips, he's saying, look at all I've done. Look at how impressive I am. Look at all that has been accomplished under my leadership and, and my rulership and for the glory of my majesty. Pride. This is one of the aspects of it. Tim Keller says one of the, one of the things about pride is that it can be defined like this. It's cosmic plagiarism. It's cosmic plagiarism. It's when you, you know, like when you plagiarize work at school, you take somebody else's work, their ideas, their creativity, and then you put your name on it. And you go, look at what I did. That's plagiarism. Well, pride is cosmic plagiarism. It's taking the handiwork of God and putting your name on it. Because everything that you have is owing to him. All your gifts, all your talents, all your abilities, all your experiences, all of your successes, all of that is really God's doing. And when you begin to claim that as your own and say, no, 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 that's not God's work in my life. That's my work in my life. I accomplished this. I built this. This is for my majesty, for my glory. That's one of the aspects of pride. So, you know, if you're trying to wrestle your way through this, I mean, just think about this. You didn't choose where you were born. You didn't choose the family that you, that you would be born into. You didn't choose the period of time in which you would live. You didn't choose the gift mix that you would possess. You didn't choose the experiences and the opportunities that would be afforded to you. Everything about your life is a gift from God. And therefore, any success that you experience ultimately belongs to God. I mean, obviously, you, you work hard and you do what's necessary of, of, of you and you can take pride in your, your work and your efforts and your accomplishments, but you ultimately ought to be saying, this is God's work. This is a grace of God that I am where I am doing what I'm doing. That goes against the cultural narrative of our society today, which is you can do anything you want to as long as you work hard at it. And when you do that, what, what do people think? Look at what I accomplished. Look at my glory. This is a message for all peoples and all nations and all places Pride is dangerous, and it is resident in us, and we want to take the glory of God away from him, and we want to ascribe it to ourselves. We want to boast in our accomplishments. We want to show people how impressive we are. We want to deify ourselves. We want people to look at us and honor and glorify us. So the dream comes true, verses 31 and 32, even as the words of his Admission of his greatness were still on his lips. A voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people 
and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox, and seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. It comes true, and Nebuchadnezzar has to leave, and he actually goes crazy. In, in verses 33, it says it like this, Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. He goes out of his royal palace and into the wilderness, and he goes crazy. It's kind of, kind of weird, and I was like, you know, this week I was thinking through why. Why does he go crazy? And again, Tim Keller, he points out this is almost like a parable. It almost like, it's almost like an ironic parable that shows you what pride is really like. He is prideful, and so he experiences kind of the fulfillment of that pride. What does pride do to you? Pride makes you irrational. It makes you believe that the entire world revolves around you. It makes you like a wild beast. What, what do wild beasts do when they come into contact with people? Wild animals are either frightened but that, that this you know, human individual is going to harm them, and so they either run or they attack. That's what pride does. It makes, you, it makes you irrational, and if you're a prideful person, then other people who come into you know, the proximity of you and you start to feel threatened by them, what do you do? You either run away from them and despise them or you attack them. Pride makes you irrational. You become easily offended. You use people. You begin to see them maybe as a meal, maybe as something that you're just going to feast upon. You're going to use them to accomplish whatever it is that you're trying to do. Pride is a very, very dangerous thing. And so Nebuchadnezzar goes out of the palace and out of his mind. Verse 16, we're reminded he was given the mind of an animal. He's just absolutely crazy. He's got hair growing like the feathers of an eagle. His nails are now like claws of a bird. And this period of seven times happens. Well, finally, he repents. Verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Repentance, friends, is a return to sanity. Repentance is a return to sanity. Sometimes people look at Christianity and they just think, okay, Christianity is so weird, it's so bizarre. It feels like Christians are just people who kind of resign themselves to, to, to God. Sometimes people can't understand Christianity, but the truth is repentance, to cast yourself on God, to trust in Him, to return to Him is really a return to sanity. It's the, it's the most logical thing that you can do. Pride is insane. Pride is irrational, but trusting God, that is logical. That's saying, God, you rule, and I'm going to entrust my life to you. I'm going to place myself at your disposal, and I'm going to believe that you are going to do good things for me and in me and through me. Repentance is a return to sanity. Nebuchadnezzar raises his eyes toward heaven and his sanity was restored and he begins to praise God. It's clicking for him now. The truth of God's goodness and his leadership in the world that he has made is now clicking for him and he praises God in this way. Verses 34 and 35, he begins to say this, his dominion, God's dominion is an eternal dominion. My, my dominion is temporary. It's transient. It's here for a moment and it's gone. His dominion is eternal. It'll last forever. His kingdom endures from generation 
to generation. Mine, it'll, it'll last a couple generations, but then it'll fade away. Verse 35, all the peoples are of the earth are regarded as nothing. When, when God looks at all that he has made and all these things that we think are so big and so impressive, when God looks at them, they ultimately amount to nothing. They are regarded as nothing. That's how small we are in comparison to the greatness of God. He, God, does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. God is in control and he is ruling and reigning and therefore no one can say to him, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is in such beautiful control of this world that he has made that we one day when, it, when we begin to acknowledge God's sovereignty and his goodness and his control, we will be staggered. We will praise him for it. And we will not say to him, what on earth are you doing? Right? This is a moment where our pride just kind of bubbles to the surface because we look at this world and we look at its brokenness and we look at the pain and the hurt and all these things and things aren't going the way that we think they should. And so we say to God, what have you done? Humility is when you acknowledge God's goodness and his sovereignty and his control and his ability to work all things together for good. And you begin to say, whatever it is that's going on, I trust you. I, I, you rule. And no one can hold back your hand. No one can stay your plan. No one can stop you from doing what you intend to do. And therefore, no one holds back his hand or says to him, what have you done? Now, how does that actually work? Where do you, how do you become a person like Nebuchadnezzar praising God? How do you become a person like Daniel who's able to reveal this incredible plan? And I was, um, this week I was kind of pointed to another place in the Bible where we see a contrast between the prideful leadership of Nebuchadnezzar and the leadership of God. It's Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52 and verses 13 to 15, Isaiah, another prophet, is speaking about this really bizarre individual. He's called a suffering servant over and over again. And this, this suffering servant, he's, he's not doing things the way that you would an anticipate. He's not kind of leading with might and authority and greatness and majesty. Instead, he's doing things the complete opposite way. And so in Isaiah 52, verse 13, it says, See, my servant will act wisely. There's a leader, a servant, a king, who's going to do what's best. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. He, he will be one whose greatness will be acknowledged, but the way in which he receives that acknowledgement is not through military campaign. It's not through his impressive political stature. Let's look at what he does. Verse 14, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of a human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. You don't look at him and go, Look at how beautiful this man is. Look at, look at how handsome he is. No, he's, he's totally marred and disfigured. Verse 15, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. This one, this suffering servant, this humiliated one, this one who is disfigured beyond recognition, kings and nations will look on him and they will shut their mouths. They will be stopped at his greatness. He will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths. And for what they were not told, they will now see. And what they've not heard, they will now understand. Who is this suffering servant? If you're a Christian, you know this. This is like Sunday school stuff. 
It's Christ. It's Jesus. He's the king that we really need. He's the king without pride. He's the king who suffered to the point of death on a cross to redeem a people for himself. Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to sense that now as he has experienced the humiliation of God and he's now confessing and praising the greatness of the Lord Almighty. Well, look at what happens to him. Verse 36, at the same time that my sanity, at that same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. He finally learned the lesson. He acknowledged the sovereignty of God. He acknowledged the greatness of God. He acknowledged his transience and his limitations and the fact that he was there because God placed him there. He was humbled, and therefore he was restored, and he became the leader again. And now, verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. So church family, this is a moment where we just kind of lay our hearts out and we say, God, is there pride in me? Do I look at this world and think that it's really all about me? My glory, how, how impressive I might be to other people? Because in this moment, I want to I want to be humbled. You're able to humble the proud, but I want to get to that place where I'm able to say, God, you are ruler over all. You are Lord and you are sovereign and my life is under your hand of guidance and your providence and everything that I have, I want to use for your glory. I hope that we could be humbled by the greatness of God today and I hope that as we've opened the word together, you've experienced something of his magnitude, his greatness, his glory, his grandeur. God is great. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that by your Spirit, you would continue to impress upon us your greatness. And we confess, Lord, our lack of faith. The, the chaos of the moment looms large, and if I'm being honest, and I'm sure other people in here feel the same way, sometimes we don't acknowledge your bigness in all of it that this is not beyond your control, that this world is not spiraling out of control, heading into some godless, you know, awful experience. You are ruling and you are reigning. You are able to depose kings and set kings up. You rule, you are the ruler of heaven. And so we acknowledge that right now. We speak it, we say it, because we want to believe it, Lord. We confess your greatness. Help that to change us. Help that to make us lovers of our enemies. Just like you, God, you loved us even while we were enemies. You sent Christ to die for us. Thank you for that redeeming love. Help us to be agents of that love in this broken world. Amen and amen.